Guys, if you'd like to grab a Bible and open it up, Luke chapter 23. Uh, this is what we're going to be looking at, Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 33 to 43. And uh, this is an amazing passage. And um, the, the more I read it, the more I'm just overwhelmed by the love of Jesus and um, this story is right at the point of Jesus taking his last breaths on earth. And even in those moments, we see the goodness of Jesus' mercy, despite our sinfulness. And we see the light of the salvation that he offers in this passage. And it's a great message for us all today to hear that God is a merciful God. That Jesus loves you to bits, despite your imperfections, my imperfections, our sinfulness, our short fallings. Jesus loves you so much that he went to the cross for you so that you could be saved and so that you could have eternal life. Let's read this passage. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there held insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So in the moments leading up to this particular part of the story, we've seen Jesus taking his final steps on planet Earth, already burdened by the weight of the cross and bearing the terrifying scars of torture that he'd just endured. And a man called Simon then takes Jesus' cross and carries it for him to the place of the skull where Jesus was to be crucified. And there he was to be executed with two criminals, one on his left, one on his right. And in that place, Jesus was nailed on the crossbeam, which was then fixed to an upright piece of wood. It was lifted up high and dropped into the ground. You can imagine Jesus' gasp of air, almost tangible in that moment. This was the most excruciating and barbaric way to die. This was the most desperate of situations. 
but one that Jesus faced with absolute love. In uh, February this year, I had the real privilege of, of going to Israel and to Jerusalem. And it was an incredible place. And you really got a sense of it being the center of the world and for it being so important in the life of our faith. Something about that place, which obviously is Jesus Christ and his presence. But I went to this place of the alleged crucifixion and there were hundreds of people, some on their knees, some wailing, some silent. And in that place, I myself was just overwhelmed by the weight and the power of what Jesus had done for me. It was immense. But you know what? You don't need to go to that place in order to grasp how much God loves you. To know how deep and how wide his love is for you. I want to encourage you to keep this passage open as we work through it because it just oozes the love that God, through Jesus, has for you. And why? Well, very simply, I want to give us three points to focus on today. The first one is looking at the mercy of Jesus. He's a merciful saviour. The second one, we explore, actually, as Jesus was being crucified, he was also being mocked. And how we relate to that today. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus, he really is the Messiah. So let's explore the mercy of Jesus together. So let's look at what's happening in this passage. Jesus, who Pilate could find no fault in, is being led to his death. He's being tortured. He's hanging there on the cross with two criminals beside him. And we know from earlier in Luke's gospel that Jesus was being tried with murderers and terrorists. In fact, Jesus himself was, was hanging there in one of their places because Barabbas, who was a ringleader of murder and terrorism at the time, he should have been in the place where Jesus was hanging on that cross. But instead, Jesus is there. Now, I don't know about you, but when someone does wrong towards me, my first instinct is quite often not actually to forgive them, even though that's what we're meant to do as good Christian people. Quite often, I like to think about how I can get revenge. And if you know me well, you know I'm a bit of a, a practical joker. And sometimes I'm actually the person who is asking for a lot of the forgiveness because my practical jokes tend to go a little bit too far and get me into hot water. And a few weeks ago, my mum and dad came uh, to York to help me fit this new kitchen in our, in our home. And um, they spent 10 days with us and uh, they were both exhausted. My mum had gone into the living room for a little nap and my dad uh, was putting his hand to some plumbing in the kitchen. And I was there assisting him and it went all still and quiet. And to be honest, I was just a little bit bored. So I thought, well, how could I liven up the situation? So my dad's working there on plumbing, my mum's snoring in the living room. And I just go, bang! Really loud. My dad 
is, I mean, he just jumps. His hand comes off the plumbing. There's water gushing out of the pipes in our brand new kitchen on our brand new laminate flooring. That's all shooting out the pipes, right? Oh my word, what have I done? My mum comes screaming into the kitchen thinking that I'd been electrocuted or someone had died or something terrible like that. And because there was now water on the floor, she skidded along the floor. She fell on her back, banged her head. And as she tried to save herself from falling, she pulled all the tools down from the cabinets, the brand new cabinets, a hammer, everything fell on her head. This was a disastrous moment that I'd caused just because I wanted to play a little bit of a practical joke. It was chaos, okay? And in that moment, in that moment, I had to ask for forgiveness. Once the mopping up had been done, once we'd sorted out my mum's slight concussion, I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. But they were both gracious and they were forgiving, and they were loving. And here in this, in this um, text, we see in verse 34, we see Jesus, despite him being faced with all that excruciating torture and things that he was faced with, he says this, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Now, why did he do that? He did it because he's full of mercy. And that's the nature of God. He is full of mercy for you and for me. And if you want some evidence of that, then flick to Psalm 103. I love this psalm. And it's a psalm which talks about the character of God, the nature of God. And verse 8 of that psalm says this. He is slow to anger, abounding in love, full of compassion and mercy. God bless my mum and dad. They were full of all those kinds of things in that situation. But this is who Jesus Christ is. This is his nature all of the time. And on the cross, where the very people who he came to save put him there, he's still full of mercy towards them and towards us. So why can Jesus cry, Father, forgive them? It's because he knows that his death on that cross is going to be the means by which God can forgive the sin of the world. I suspect we all know that famous verse from John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that we may not die but have everlasting life. That's why Jesus came. So Jesus dying on the cross in that moment, it had to happen. It was meant to be. Jesus knew why he came and why he had to do what he did and what his death meant for the world. And for those looking on in that moment, you see, they'd heard all these rumors and the stories that people were saying that Jesus is the Messiah that he's, the, he's God in flesh, that he's been healing people, he's been raising people from the dead, he's been forgiving sins, stuff only God can do. And yet in this moment, this man who claims all of these things is there hanging on a cross. What's happened? 
Well, this leads to my second point, which is the mocking of Jesus. So Jesus shows this outrageous mercy, even in these, these crucial moments of his last breaths here on earth. And at the same time, he's been mocked. Everyone around Jesus, watching him hanging there, is mocking him. They're taunting him. And there's three particular taunts that come his way. The first one is this, in verse 35. He said he saved others. So let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The second one is in verse 36. They say to him, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Verse 39, they say to him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. And then to top it off, they nail a plaque above his head on the cross. And it says the king of the Jews. And it's nailed there in jest to mock him further. But oh, how true it is. And they didn't realize. But what I want us to notice is in the middle of all this mocking, Jesus is hanging there. He's hanging there. And it's full of truth and testimony about who he is. You know, verse 35, it says, there's a, a mock, they're mocking him because he's the saving one. In verse 36, they're mocking him because he's the king of the Jews. Verse 39, they're saying, ah, you call yourself the Messiah. Yet this plaque above his head, which was meant in jest to mock him further, it absolutely declares who he is. And that's the irony. It's true. Jesus is the king. He is the saving one. He is the Messiah. Jesus is all of these things, and they just didn't see it. They feel like they were blinded by their own sin. And why? Well, because Jesus, he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. They were expecting this military leader of might and of power, a great politician who would uh, deliver them from the oppressors, the Romans. But Jesus isn't that at all. But he's so much more. And he came to deliver the people, not just from a particular group of people for a particular time, but forever. And the difficult thing about this story, for us listening to this now, today, is that we can all relate to it. We can relate to the mockers, because we mock Jesus all of the time. You may be familiar with a song, uh, which I love, and it's called, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And the second verse goes like this. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. 
You see, we all mock Jesus, don't we? Perhaps not overtly all the time, but sometimes we do. We mock him with the way we live our lives. We don't live as if he is the saving one, as though he is the king or the Messiah. And sometimes we live as though we ourselves save, as though we ourselves are king, as though we are the Messiah of our own lives and of the world. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of royalty, um, but I had the real privilege when I was 16 years old of meeting the Queen. And uh, when I was 16, I had a part-time job at my um, home church. It was uh, Beverly Minster. It was a large Anglican church. And um, I absolutely loved spending every Saturday doing my eight hours of work there. I used to clean brasses, get the church ready for the Sunday services. And on occasion, because it was such a large uh, church, with a, uh, it was quite prestigious. It looked amazing. Um, Westminster Abbey, the two towers at Westminster Abbey are actually modelled on Beverly Minster. And so there was a real sense of grandeur about this place. And I, I always imagined kind of meeting the Queen. And one day the head verger came up to me and he said, we've got a very special visitor coming. And I was thinking, oh, it'd be someone from the local authority. Maybe the Lord Lieutenant or something like that. And, uh, and then he said, oh, they're coming on a Friday. And I was 16, so I was still at school. And I was like, oh, good kid, I'm not going to get to meet them. And then he said, the queen's coming. And he said, I'd like you to lead the queen in when she comes. And my jaw dropped. So they managed to get me a day off school, which is great. Anyway, the day come. My nana was there, my mum was there, my sister. They'd hide hats in. They never usually wear hats. They couldn't even get them in the door. They were that big. They were so proud, and this was my moment. The church was full of about a 1,000 people. There were bodyguards all over. The bells were ringing. There were the press um, all over the place taking photographs. I'd never been in a situation like this before. There was a real atmosphere of expectation and that I was about to be in the presence of someone grand and royal. And so I was there. The whole church was silent. I was stood in the middle of the West End, facing out the great West Doors beneath the, the two towers. And the bells were ringing. Archbishop was there. It was daunting. My legs were like jelly. They were shaking. And I was waiting for the Queen to arrive. And then all of a sudden, this burgundy Bentley slowly approaches and stops directly in the centre of the gates. And out comes the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. And they're walking towards me. They're greeted by the Lord Lieutenant. And the next person to receive them into the building was me. And the Queen came up the steps, walked into the church. And she stood literally half a meter in front of me. And this was my moment. All I had to do was to bow my head from the neck and to signal to the organist to start the fanfare. Well, I went into shock. And I'd spent time preparing for this, and it was a disaster. Have you ever watched the Churchill advert on television, The Dog? 
yeah? That's what I turned into, the nodding dog in front of Her Majesty the Queen. I was like this. I was only meant to bow once. I must have bowed about 15 times in front of Her Majesty, and she must have thought, oh, this crazy boy, how nervous must he be? Yes, I was, ma'am. Anyway, I got over that, and I signaled to the organist that I let the Queen down, and it all went to plan. But do you know what? There was something about being in the presence of royalty. I'd never experienced that before. And here in Jesus, we can stand in the presence of the King every single day of our lives. And he's far greater than the Queen. He is the one who can offer us eternal salvation. You know, some people could have said, oh, Lee, you are mocking the queen in that moment. I wasn't. It was just an accident that that happened. I I didn't mean any of it. But we do. We all mock Jesus with the way we live our lives, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And what I love about the queen is that she has an extraordinary faith in Jesus Christ, that she recognizes that, yes, she's the monarch, And she's the queen of our nation. But there's a king who rules above her, the king of kings, and that is Jesus Christ. In a Christmas speech the other year, she said this, Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendships, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we feel the power of God's love. Wow. Jesus isn't primarily a teacher or a philosopher. He's the saviour of the world. And it was our sin, yours and mine, that held him there on the cross. Would we really mock him if we knew who he really was? This man has the power to heal and to forgive. You and me. And how, you may ask. How? Well, thirdly, He's the Messiah. Quite simply, he is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. You know, in the Old Testament, for hundreds of years, the Messiah had been prophesied. And you can read about it all throughout the Old Testament. But if you want to see a little glimpse now, then flick to Isaiah chapter 53. And this is all about the suffering Messiah. The one who suffered in our place. And when you read this passage, there can be no doubt whatsoever, surely, that Jesus came as the Messiah. Verse 12 of chapter 53 says this, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. This is what we've just read in this account of Jesus' death and crucifixion. 
He quite literally poured out his life on the cross unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified with criminals on his left and on his right. And what held him there on the cross was the sin of many. And even in that moment, he made intercession for the transgressors. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the Messiah that was prophesied long ago. And it's been fulfilled in this moment through Jesus Christ. You know, interestingly, I, I discovered this weekend that um, rabbis, they don't publicly uh, read chapter 53 of Isaiah in synagogues. Why? Why would this be? Perhaps because the messianic prophecy is fulfilled in this man, Jesus Christ. You see, we see Jesus forgiving and saving even in that moment as he's dying on the cross, hanging in between two criminals. And one of them mocks Jesus and insults him, verse 39. He says, aren't you the Messiah? If so, save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebukes this mocker. And look at how he rebuked him. Verse 41. He says this. We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, we should be in the place of Jesus Christ on the cross. And in this moment, the criminal recognizes that he is dying justly. He deserves it. But he also recognizes that Jesus is dying even though that he's perfect and innocent. And the criminal in that one moment, he recognizes that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the saving one. And so what does he do? After he has the light bulb moment of who Jesus really is, he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Why did he say that? Because in that moment, he has faith that Jesus is the one who can bring about restoration and resurrection for him. And what does Jesus say in response? He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. You see, as that criminal in that instance gave his life, his faith to Jesus, his salvation was immediate. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, don't worry if you weren't, you can go away and read this parable, the uh, parable of the persistent widow. But we were left with Jesus saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, here in his last mortal moments, the criminal has faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And guess what? More so than faith of some of Jesus' own disciples. Because if we skip ahead, we hear that after Jesus' resurrection, two of the disciples were walking. And Jesus joined them, but they didn't recognize him. That was intentional of Jesus. And they said, 
we had hoped that this would, person would have been the one to redeem Israel. You see, what happened in that conversation was their faith in Jesus had slipped away. It had faded away. Now, it's sometimes tempting for us, isn't it, to think, how can this criminal suddenly be saved by Jesus, given what he has done? Surely not. We all fall into that trap occasionally of asking that question. Well, the good news is for all of us that it's not on us. You see, you may be sat here today and you might acknowledge that your faith is shaky, that it's weak. Maybe it's new. Or maybe it's mature and you feel like your faith is strong. But regardless, it's Jesus Christ who offers salvation. It's because of what he has done and not what you or I have done. And that's grace. You know, we don't deserve it. It's completely undeserved, but he chooses to lavish you and me with his love, his mercy, his grace. Charles Spurgeon said this, It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of him upon whom you rely. Christ is able to save you if you come to him, be your faith weak or be it strong. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller expands and says this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you know how much you are loved? You are the reason why Jesus kept hanging there on the cross. That's how much God loves you. And so we've heard this amazing passage that even in Jesus' desperate moments of facing death, he chooses to be merciful. As he's mocked by the people he came to save. Yet because of their sinfulness, they were blinded. They didn't know the truth of who he was. He still went through with it. Because he knew he had to die on that cross. So that you and me could have salvation, eternal life. And life in all of its fullness. He went through with that because he loves you so much. Now, how possibly can we hear of that message and not respond with any integrity? Surely something within our hearts today is stirred by this message. That this man would hang there Give up his life for you and for me. I wonder what it evokes inside of you today.
Now, I think we have two clear responses to this. And the first one is that, you know, we could be like one of the criminals that hung beside Jesus and simply continue our lives mocking Jesus through our words and through our actions, living a life that doesn't please, please him, that doesn't honor him, that denies him who he is. We can continue with that, that path, that way of life. Or we can be like the other criminal who despite our sinfulness and the things we do wrong, we recognize that Jesus is the Messiah of our lives. He is the Savior. Now I hope that's the way you respond today. That's the way I want to respond today. And maybe we need to answer this question in the quietness of our hearts. Do you tend to Christ today? Do you tend to Christ?